Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast. I'm your host, Rafe Kelly. At Evolve Move Play, our aim is to help you cultivate a more meaningful life and a more heroic self by reconnecting deeply to movement, mindfulness, nature, and community practices. This podcast was created to bring the best and brightest minds in all of these subjects together to better understand how we can create an empowering and sustainable ecology of practices for personal growth. If you're interested in being part of this ongoing conversation, the best way you can support us and get involved is by joining our Podcast Plus membership. By joining, you will get backstage access to our live podcast airing once a month, as well as a private question and answer session with me and our guests after the show. On top of that, you'll get access to our thriving online community where you can continue these deeper discussions with people all over the world who are just as passionate and curious about these topics as you. More details about the membership as well as the link to get signed up are in the description below. And whether you can join, be sure to like, share, subscribe, and hit that bell icon so that you can be notified every Monday when our episodes drop. Thanks so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Evolve Move Play podcast. This week, my guest is Guy Sangstock. Guy is the founder, uh, co-founder and owner of the Circling Institute. He's been working on something called Circling since 1998 which describes as a yoga of communication. I myself have not done circling, but it's something that many people who follow my work and who kind of move in the same circles have been uh, talking a lot about and getting great value from. Among them, John Gervaiki, who of course is my close friend and mentor, and who pointed me in the direction of having a conversation of Guy uh, again recently. And um, Guy was also interested in having a chat based on some of the stuff that has been coming out on my channel. So I'm excited to, to jump on the line and, and capture what came out of our first real meeting of minds. And I think it was a, a very interesting conversation. I, I dug into as much as I could a little bit of Guy's background in, in communication and how it came up. And we were also both very interested in the most recent Jordan Peterson and John Gervais conversation. And I dug it into breaking that down and our response to it and embodiment and how it relates to spirituality and Christianity and um, epistemology and all the things that uh, I've been talking a lot about recently. And Guy is Guy's an interesting person to interview. And it's something I've noticed in many of his interviews. He's not particularly oriented towards telling his story or telling, uh, you know, kind of his talking points. Rather than tell you about circling, he tends to um, embody it. He tends to act out what circling is. And so you'll notice in his interviews, he very often sort of turns the, the conversation into a deep uh, study of the person that he is talking to and practices how we can empathize with our position. And I expected this from him, and indeed that's, that's what happened. And he, he brought a very interesting side of my own history and story out, um, which, was, uh, which had been sort of gestating for many of the conversations that I've had recently, including my conversation with John Blakey and Tom Wexler and Dave Wardman which is really kind of grappling with the legacy of the counterculture and how that's impacted and everything that we've come to do and, and why we're in this space talking about these things. So if you're interested in these themes, I think you'll get a lot out of this conversation between Guy and I. So without further ado, a conversation with Guy Sengstock. Guy, welcome to the Evolve New Play podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. I've been looking forward to talking with you and get, getting to know you more. I think we, we have some convergences, right, around what, we're, what we do and yeah. how we kind of 
how our work interfaces the world. And John, John suggested we we swap notes. So, yeah, John Reiki has been bugging me for at least a year to 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 interview you. And I I like to really sort of dig into the thinker's work before I can before I feel really ready. You know, when I feel like someone's putting out a. a some work that has a, a lot of value or that is or that's less familiar with me it's easy for me to like interview parkour athletes who i don't know that well um but yeah so i've been waiting but um right before we 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 started recording you're telling me a little bit about your experience of, of kind of preparing to, to chat with me which was interesting and so i, I was curious if you could share that story once again for the audience well yeah just watching just watching the innovation i don't know I don't know if that's what you call it, but the the innovation of just basically using your environment to move, right? Yeah. Like as as a means to move and exercise. And then I took a walk, mm-hmm. and then I just noticed how how like like corners of streets and this tree over here started to show up as as things to grab and like things I can climb and. Um, and it was really interesting. One is I noticed just watching the videos, just whatever possibility the work presented to me anyways, um, like seemed to, it, it just had me notice how much I would imagine my movement or what addresses me as <laughs> to move towards or to call to me, right, is really restricted. And just watching that video, all of a sudden, it was kind of like the the possibility of like the whole world being a kind of like you know obstacle course of some 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 regard just seemed like it just highlighted just a sense of a restriction that I, I wasn't even at all aware that I was inside of some kind of invisible lines, and I and it had me think I'm like oh I bet this was this runs really really deep just. Just that little thing I was talking about, just op- the world being open and addressable to me, right, and me to it in this in this way, right? And and I bet that in itself is just can be really probably imagine it could be pretty transformative for the people that you work with. Absolutely, um, yeah. I mean, we could talk quite a bit about that, but. Uh, um, yeah. Real quickly, that you know, that's the experience that all of us who started parkour had in the in the beginning was this sense of the, the world opening up, and you have a a vision now for all these potentials that you didn't have before. And in this whole conversation, you know, we're both followers of John Rubikis and Jordan Peterson's on meaning, I view this as literally a um, a way in which we are blind to the meaning that is inherent in the world as it already is. There's the meaning of the tree, the meaning of the wall. It, it contains these potentials for you to transform yourself through interaction with them that we're blind to. The children are aware of, small children are fairly aware of this. Like they have a, a sense of, of being invited into move with the world. And then somehow our culture loses that over time. And I think that's actually part of the meaning crisis. We lose the sense of, of our potential interaction with the world. And, and yeah. I think, yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'd love to share more about that with you. 
But um, before we go deeper into that, I'd just like to um, kind of introduce you to the audience a little bit and, and talk about what you do, which is you're the founder and uh, co-founder, owner of uh, Cir the Circling Institute, right? Mm -hmm. I, was, I was listening to you describe that and um, you described it as a, as a yoga of communication, mm -hmm. which I think yeah. is a beautiful analogy. Yeah, totally. And it's, it's interesting to me in particular because, you know, so this moment that you just described, this, this walking through the world and seeing that it could contain potentials you are not aware of and how that could transform you. Like that's like the, 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 the genesis, that's the seed of everything that I've done. But mm. the thing keeps growing, it keeps changing shape on me. So yeah. I, you know, I, I, that was initially just the city for me. And then I discovered the movement in the natural world. And that was, that was such a, a rehoming for me as a kid who grew up in nature. Mm. And then I saw that all the people in the parkour community, not all of them, but most of them didn't have that sense of the natural world as a place that was rich with these potentials. And so I put together this event and I, you know, we taught this three-day event out in the woods. And we, we uh, you know, I also had a martial arts background and interest in general movement stuff and was kind of putting that all together. And people really liked it. We were in the woods together. You know, we had saunas and campfires and all this stuff. And, you know, I asked people what 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 they liked about the event. And the feedback was much less about the movement than I expected. It was much more about something else that was happening. Yeah. And over time, repeatedly, it became more and more apparent that the thing that people, one of the really, probably the most important transformation people were actually seeking had to do with community and feeling deeply part of a community and feeling deeply part of nature is a huge part of it as well and, and having confidence and freedom and movement but I guess I expected those and so when I kept hearing like the, the connections I made with the people were so powerful yeah so and it's something else right yeah so it, uh -huh. it emerged in my work and so we ended up with this idea that that fundamentally we're you know and then I found Peterson Rebecca and came to this idea that fundamentally we're we're about helping people find meaning. And we help people find meaning through connecting, right? Religio, through finding those things that connect us, which are, I've been saying recently, it's, it's fundamentally, it's about the self, right? What is, what is, what are all the aspects of you? How do they diversify out and unify, right? Right. How do you map that better? Um, yeah. And then it's the self in relationship to the arena, the, the natural world. Yeah. And then it's the self in relationship to others. Like these are the fundamental connections that we are seeking in life. And so we talk about to, to, to do that well, you need a movement practice, a mindfulness practice, a nature connection practice, and a community practice. Right. So right. this aspect of the community practice has been something that's come through, uh, through like um, some of my students who are from the Wilderness Awareness School. And we started to use storytelling as part of it, also kind of um, Jordan Peterson influenced. And, and then the music we found has had immense impact. Like having good music has this, like, like a tribal connection is really powerful. Yeah. Um, but then we've started dialoguing as well. 
and like utilizing like inside generation dialoguing as part of the movement practice. And as all this is generated, people. What was the last insight? You said insight. Insight. And what? And what? So like, okay, got it. We'll do a movement practice, and then rather than have me explain the point of the movement practice, we'll have a student set up in dyads and discuss what their insights were. And then we'll get in a circle and share what those insights were, right? And have each person sort of like go through a process of trying to form their own insights to describe what they're getting out of the practice. Yeah, yeah. And what's what that that process? The uh, so they go in the center of the circle. Is that what you said? They kind of at some point they go in the center and kind of discuss it. We don't go in the center of the circle, but we 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 have people set up in like twos, right? So it'll be two people talking talk to each other, dialogue. Yeah. Okay. And then we'll then after after at, not every time, but after a certain amount of times of that, we'll we'll set up a circle where everyone can can talk about it. So it's like we just finished the rough and tumble section, and now yeah. you have all this opportunity to sort of inside generate with a part with your partners as you went through it. Now, what are your central insights that you want to share with the group? Right. So, so as all that's been happening, um, in various circles that I run in, the circling has come up repeatedly as a practice that is of interest to people. And yeah. a lot of people I know and I've seen people who are kind of using circling's communication technology. So to me, it maps really really nicely into the structure of the way that I've been thinking about things already. But I haven't had a chance to go and do it yet, right? I haven't had a chance to, to see how you're setting up this, this part of the practice, which is the, you know, it seems like, tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems like circling is community practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes, definitely, definitely. And, 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 and very much in, in the sense that you talked about, I felt a familiar scent <laughs> um perfume when you talked about yeah i put on this thing but then never the what everybody was describing through the thing was this something else yeah right something else ends up disclosing this whole world that teaches you about what you were doing and just dis it discloses what you're doing more right and leads to all these other things but this, I think the thing that felt really familiar to me in the way that you described that was something really humbling about this, right? Mm -hmm. and, it, and, and also it's humbling and it's also lets me know, I think that I'm on the right spot, right? <laughs> my attention's on the right spot where like my attention is gripped by something, right? And in this case, for me, it was, it was something about these, these like incredibly profound conversations I was having with my friends. Um, and Jerry and I, um, in particular, it really, it, 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 it glowed to us. And we, in a certain sense, kind of really became best friends and bonded through looking at going, what is that thing that just happened? Well, why did we just spend 12 hours? Like, what, what the hell was that, right? <laughs> and, 
And in some sense, I remember after the first time where a circling happened just spontaneously with a group of friends of ours, and it was in 1998 at Burning Man. Mm -hmm. um, and it was 12 hours of us basically circling. Um, we didn't have a word for it. Like it was just uh, a couple of friends in that group, like had a conflict that was yeah. underneath the surface and I sat down and just got interested in it. And that turned into what we now understand is, is circling. Um, and Jerry, at the end of it, when he pointed back to where we were, where we did it. And I was like, he's like that. I was like, yeah, that. And we didn't have a word, but we just took, we spontaneously just held each other's hand out and just shook hands to it and just committed to it. Oh. And, and it's so interesting because I still feel like, I still feel like I'm learning what we were pointing towards that day. It has this kind of disclosive or inexhaustible quality um, that, yeah. that the more I do it, the more it yields something beyond my understanding of what I thought we were doing when I was initially planning on doing it, right? That kind of something else. And, and that's been the nature of it. It's been like an open inquiry that just reveals and reveals more and more and more about what it is, but also in this way that like what it takes to understand it in some way has really, I mean, I mean, and not so graciously all the time has really afforded my own, <laughs> my own growth and you could say transformation to become somebody who could understand it. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it has this mutual kind of, as I open to it, it opens to, to me like in such a way that has me open to it and this mutual self-disclosure, it's very autopoetic. And, and it's that, I think, that's what I felt, just a hint of what you were talking about, your relationship to your work, right? Just, a, I just, something, yeah. I, I, no, I think I heard that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's a couple things that you said that, a couple ideas that popped in my head. And I was like, one was, it's kind of, it reminds me of Bruce Lee's analogy of the finger pointing to the moon, right? It's like you know, the form is the finger and the moon is this other thing, right? And it's kind of like you're, you're continually um, recognizing that what you thought was the moon is actually just a finger again. And then letting it go. Like there's some, you talked about the idea of humbling, which I think is really interesting because it's, when people tell you that what you do is transformational, like there's a real ego trap potentially in that. But I also, I've actually felt that that the facilitating these things has been really powerful in helping me tame my ego. And that's an interesting thing. And I think part of it is like, you set something up and somebody tells you, oh my God, that was the best thing ever. And it was so transformational. And you're like, oh, cool, and your ego swallowing. And you say, okay, well, what was it about? And they tell you something that was completely not what you expected. And then you're like, well, wait, <laughs> wait, wait a minute. <laughs> like, like, you know, I, 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 something's happening, but I don't understand it. And, yeah. and I'm, and I'm in service of it. And I, like, I had a chat with our kind of students at the end of one of the years. And I was, I was talking about this and I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm the, the, at the head of the community, let's say, right. But it's not, 
It's not my mind that has made this thing, right? Like return to the source, whatever it's become, it's, this is the central event for us. It's emergent in the interaction between me and the students. And like, I would say that by nature, I'm kind of a low empathy person. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and I'm a little egotistic and I'm a little bit harsh. Like I can, like I have, a, I'm very judgmental, critical. Mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. and the event has become this place that has become this thing that calls forth this real openness and this real deep love for people and empathizing. And, and I don't, I don't think that I, I don't think I set out to do that. And I don't think it was my intention until, until the students showed up and it was happening and they told me that it was important to them. Yeah. And then, then I had to, to, then I had to surrender to what was being, what was happening. Right. Well, there was something really profound about the idea that it was like, there's a capacity for something to emerge in, in teaching that is almost, it's almost inverse from your personality if you just thought about like who you were before the teaching experience. Totally, totally, yeah. So that I was just, yeah. yeah. I, I just had made a, sometimes I do these little walking, um, I don't know, walk, walking, speaking, thinking things. And I put them up on my channel sometimes when I have like something just rolling through my mind and it's just me pointing the camera out and I'm just walking, you know, and thinking and, and speaking, which is, is a real interesting thing just to think about walking and thinking and speaking. There's something really, there's something really deep yeah. that's going on there, right? Um, but it was it was one of this very thing that you're talking about was really on my mind of like just noticing because I just we we had just finished the final weekend of the main course that I that I teach these days, which is the art of circling, which is like a year long um, you know intensive training program for people to learn how to facilitate and lead circles, and um, and so it's just. We just got done with, you know, basically four days of, you know, retrospectively looking back and really celebrating every, everybody and appreciating one another and kind of really making present everything that we'd all gone through that year. And so, and I, and I was noticing just this thing that you're talking about, this strangely paradoxical experience that when one when one is in the teacher position and then you, then you watch a student get it, like really get it, right? That oftentimes I have this experience of almost feeling sat down and I almost feel like I want to pray to the, to the student in that moment. There's this kind of, in a, in a, that quality of just affinity and love and humility and gratitude. It's got this, it's a real complex experience of watching and being with somebody that you maybe have like worked with for a long time. And then they get this really deep thing, right? That, that you maybe you've been pointing at, right? And then they, there's this moment where the, where 
where the light shines through and something happens and they get it, right? And I was like, why is that really seem to be so coupled with this experience of humility? It seems to become, it seems to be native to the ground of that experience. And it's, it's tricky because it's, you could also see it going the other way where the teacher could take credit for that and like, you know, kind of possess that, you know, or, or have that be kind of a narcissistic pride thing or something. But I was looking at it, I'm like, what is that? Why is that? Like, what is it that, why is humility seem to be such native ground to that experience? And I have a feel, the, the best I could, I could come up with on my walk was, and it's funny because when you, I was using an example of, of, of you know, a shift in where you, you're looking at something and all of a sudden you see what was in front of you for like a thousand years, but you had just not seen it. And then it, it, it pops forward. And I was using the example of the FedEx sign. Have you ever seen the arrow in the FedEx sign? You know, the FedEx sign? Uh, it's not yeah. familiar to me off the top of my head. Yeah, totally. Well, you know, next time you look, look for the arrow in, in the negative right. space between right. the letters. Okay, I'll look. Yeah. And, and then when you see it, you'll be like, Oh, I have not seen that like a hundred thousand times, right? And there's this experience of seeing it. Um, and what's interesting about that is that, like, you can point to where the arrow is, you can outline it, you can like. There's all these different ways that you can just simply point to the thing, right? But the one thing that you can't do is give the experience of somebody actually getting it, right? You just can't control that. And, and also the, the person who gets it can't control it either. There's this, some, there's this kind of grace that feels like a grace experience of that no matter how, how much artful teaching you do and <laughs> how much you put into it in that moment of getting it, of seeing the thing that can be really life transforming, that is that is an experience. It just seems to be something like grace to me. Yeah. Um, this reminds me of uh, some of John Ravicki's description of insight, right? It's like insight yeah. is something that can't be manufactured. It can only be effectively invited in. Right. Right. And it's the same Absolutely. thing. I think that I was thinking about the, the, the experience of being humbled by the transformations that are happening within the teaching environment. That's, you know, it's like having a proper awe for the unknown and for how the unknown sort of manifests itself within that. It's like something emerges in the environment that you're facilitating that is beyond your comprehension. Yep. And if you notice it properly, then yeah. it will humble you. Yeah, absolutely. That your proper role is to be in service of that potential for, for yeah. manifestation, right? right? Not to see yourself as, as, um, as the head of it, you know. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's like, how do I serve yeah. that thing that is so much bigger than me that has right. that has let itself in, you know, in, in the space that I've created? Yeah, absolutely. And it re it's. Uh, and it's interesting because 
I mean, this is one of the things that I love about teaching <laughs> is, is over the years, uh, you know, you start to notice, you start to notice differences that seem to make the difference, right? Where you can plant the garden, or I mean, you can, pl you know, you can plant, the, you know, the seeds, but ultimately it, it grows of its own accord, right? Mm -hmm. But you can start to notice, right? Oh yeah, when I like put a fence around the garden, it keeps certain things out and that seems to do something. And if I water it, something like this, you know, and you can, you can start to tune in, tune into it and, and atone to the difference that makes that difference. But one of the things that I've gotten a lot out of is, <laughs> this is, I guess this has a lot to do with the humility is I think I've just gotten so, through teaching, I've, I've, I've felt that I've come to such a deep respect for the, for the unknown as such, mm -hmm. right? Of that, that there's, there's that experience of seeing something and especially, you know, when it comes to, you know, when, especially with insight, because insight usually has that quality of like, um, what you have insights about or something that in some some level has already always been the case but you just had not seen it right that's kind of what the defining thing about insight so it's kind of like you you see what you were seeing with right that kind of ecstatic moment of of, of popping out and seeing what you'd been inside of the whole time which is sh shifts shifts you can't ever not not see that again right and but one of the things that I, I think I always wondered about this is like, well, what is it about that that seems to be so in inherently ecstatic, right? And oftentimes, especially when you're when you're looking at things like your own, you know, when you're struggling with something or you're working through some difficulty, oftentimes the insights that you have aren't like good news at a content level, right? It's like, Oh wow! I've just been—I've just discovered I've been pretending my whole life. <laughs> I had no idea, or I've turned my whole life into my mother, trying to finally get her to to trust me, or whatever it is. And that's how it, it's constituted everything. It's—it's it's, oftentimes these things aren't like good news, but the experience of seeing them is can be extremely ecstatic. And I think what that may be is that moment where that Aletheian truth, right? That kind of the ancient Greek word aletheia, right? Is, is where our word truth comes from. And it basically means the event or the happening of when something is concealed, the, the event of its unconcealment. Yeah. And, and for years and years, I always thought when I read that and thought about that, I always thought that I always thought about like, oh, it's the thing that's revealed, right? Which is the important part. But as I've kind of come to understand, it's, it's I think what gives it the, that ecstatic nature is that what gets revealed is on one level, you get this on a content level, you see the, th the thing that's revealed. But the experience is, is that you also see um, you see that it, it was concealed, like concealment as such gets disclosed, right? So like a, a good example of this in a movie is um, like The Sixth Sense. Remember that movie with Bruce Willis? I never watched that one. I've, I've heard about it. Oh yeah, well, I'm, I'll ruin it for you. Uh, 
but it's basically, you know, he's dead. He's dead the whole time in the movie and no one, no one knows it, right? Um, he doesn't know it. No one in the audience does, knows it. And then right at the end of the movie, like just it's something like just out of the corner of his eye, it all of a sudden it dawns on him and he starts to see, oh my God, I'm dead, right? And then everybody's in the, in the theater is like, oh, you can kind of feel that moment, right? Of, oh my God, I'm dead. There's the revelation. Mm-hmm. Then guess what happens? It goes, the movie switches and goes all the way back from the first scene and it goes scene by scene right, and flashes before you all the, the whole history of the movie, and you realize that it was obvious the whole time. It just was concealed, right? That sense, whatever that domain is of like the unknown is such that that's gets revealed, I think that that is, I've noticed, I think teaching has been one of those things where it's just like, and this is part of, part of the you know, when you're working on a methodology like a circling or what you're doing, right? A practice, it's kind of like the you can start to become attracted to the unknown as such and start to have this really deep, reverent relationship to it, right? I mean, um, and that has just been profound for me. Yeah, you know, maps and meaning. Uh, Ron Pierce talks about the idea that. Uh, that the unknown is always both promising and uh, terrifying. Right? Yeah. And yeah. when insight is sort of, um, tends to point towards promise in some sense, right? Even if, it, if it's sort of, uh, I mean, there is hor- horrifying insight, right? Like the, the story that popped into my head is Fight Club. I think Fight Club's one of you know, my real touchstone artistic works, but right? But the realization that the narrator is Tyler Durden is a horrifying moment for him, right? Yeah. But it points yeah. to a promise, right? Because in the end, the, the aspects of that, of his self that Tyler represents are, um, are, are integrated in, at least in the movie, right? In the movie, he takes agency, which is what Ty, uh, Tyler represents, and then he's able to, to um, to, to form his relationship with Marla, which is lack of, of masculine agency, you know, was was preventing him from doing. And so, right. so he can't can't get to the promised land without recognizing his delusion. So even though the delusion is deeply destabilized and really horrific when it's revealed. It is also ultimately promising. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think in our work, we tend to we spend more of our time on more promising uh, epiphanies, right? Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah. I, you know, one thing I noticed about epiphanies in my experience is the sensation that a lot of times epiphany isn't new information so much as it is uh, a moment where the, where the information that's held at a sort of shallow layer of your conceptual schema drops a layer down and reorganizes everything else. And yeah, that's a great oh, putting it. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I knew that, but now I know it, 
right? Yes. Like get yes. it, right? Getting, yes. And, yes. and that can happen, like the same idea can hit yes. you over and over and over again as it sort of like gets deeper and deeper into the bedrock of how you see the world. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's like the, appreciate the way you put that. You're right. It's like, it's almost like it gets, it's, it's like this figure ground reconstitution, right? In some sense, like that goes, it goes deeper and deeper and deeper and you get it over and over and over again. That like maybe just a little bit of a different angle or a different context. Yeah, that is, that is really, really fascinating. And it's, it's, and there's that quality and this is really the fun stuff, right? This is like, we're zeroing in on and feeling yourself kind of be it like, find the optimal grip, if you will, right? That, that, that uh, for the conditions that make those moments possible, right? That's the thing that's really cool about doing experiential trainings, right? And in 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 my experience has been because you're constantly in some sense you're you know you know for me you know designing courses and the and and like the set and the setting and the pace of things and all of the thought that goes into right the structure of an experience um has been this in some sense it's been like feeling into those moments of like, what are the conditions of possibility that seem to be that foster those moments, right? And it's it's interesting because it's like so much of it's it's um, actually another friend of mine who does he works with um, he does this kind of really intense work with um, uh, high level CEOs, um, and every year he takes them through this intensive. And he has a bunch of course, he has a bunch of co coaches that come in and train with him and help him teach the course. And he says, you know, the coaches really like in the circles that they do, they kind of like to take credit for most of the magic that happens, right? Because they're, you know, they're in there and they, they have the conversation and there's these insights and that's where all the juice is. And he says, and what he was pointing to and pointing this out, he's like, but one of the things that they don't notice is, is the structure of the curriculum, right? And the timing and the pace and the setup that when it's done well is precisely the thing that withdraws, right? It's the thing that disappears. It's the background, right? That does so much of the heavy lifting such that by the time the coach is in front of the participants that they, you know, these layers of context have, they're all, they're all nestled within them such that they can have this conversation, which the other person gets their life out of it. Right. Yeah. And, and it's the paradox in there is like, that's actually such a deep compliment to my friend who designed the course, because it's like, it's this, it's that background that he's designed that, that by virtue that they can't quite see it, right. That it disappears shows how much it's working. That just that orientation has been so useful for me, right? And been such a like a, a learning experience as a teacher. It's it's almost as if you want 
you, you could seek a competence that's so deep that it becomes invisible. Yep. Right? Like the yep. sage does nothing and yet nothing is left undone. Exactly. And that's, you know, exactly. there's, there's a lot of passages in the Tao Ching that are basically about that, about this idea that, that yeah. the highest expression of whatever art is when it, it ceases to be able to even be noticed that there is an art there. Yeah, yeah. So the thing we you're talking about, like you, what I heard you say in the beginning was, you know, for you, you have a, you know, one of your things is you find yourself not being, empathy hasn't been a natural thing for you. Like, or you talked about kind of, you have a tendency to be judgmental or something like that. Mm-hmm. What would you say, what have you found over time doing this how has it affected that in you like judgmental i mean it's it's funny because like uh when i get together with like some young highly skilled high testosterone male parkour athletes right like there's a side of my personality that comes out where we're just like cutting each other down and making jokes left and right you know and I'm just foul mouth, like dropping f bombs all over the place, and I really enjoy that aspect of myself. Right? Yeah, I love that too. Yeah, and and um, and I'm and I'll like you know I'll say be at a seminar, and then I'll go to that experience. And be like, man, the, the version of me that showed up in these two places is so so different. They're they're equally authentic expressions of me, um, but they're very they're very different facets. Right? Yeah. I don't feel inauthentic at all in either in either place, but um, but there's empathy is like a muscle that I've developed as a coach, right? It's like a and there's something that's been it's called to me in an interesting way, right? Like uh, there's um, I love the work of Jonathan Haidt, right? and so he, you know, he has his, his moral foundations theory, right? So one of them is sensitivity to harm. So if I take his test, I score pretty low on sensitivity to harm. Like, you know, I think a lot of people, I think that there's a necessity for toughening up that isn't, that isn't recognized in our culture. But, I, but there's a weird... There, there's a, there's some paradoxes and inversions there, right? Because the most resilient toughness comes from a place of secure nurture, right? Mm-hmm. That's what it seems like to me. But you, yeah. like, I love this idea that comes from Jordan Peterson that that essentially there. Are there are two primary roles in parenting. There's nurturance and encouragement. And these are the masculine and feminine poles, but we all contain both and we all play both roles, right? So when my children fall down and skin their knee, you know, they'll go to their mother if they have the option. But if they don't, then I'm I'm the backup mother, right? And I'm happy and want to play that role for them, right? I'm going to pick them up and comfort them and give them kisses and um, and then on the flip side, when they want to seek their edge, then I'm there. I'm, I'm the guy to go to seek their edge. 
and they want to be thrown high in the air and wrestled with intensely and jump off something high. They, they want their dad there, right? Um, yeah. But again, you know, if I'm not around, they're happy to wrestle with their mom too. Yes. Right? Right. So, so what makes someone who can good try this jump, right? Who has the, the mental fortitude to try the jump? All, all encouragement, all toughness, all discipline actually makes that person fragile. They become afraid to disappoint, right? They don't have security underneath it. And even if they achieve a lot, what they achieve doesn't necessarily achieve anything for them. Right. Right. And they're right. often easily broken, both mentally and physically. That's, that's what I notice. Right. So, so like the first thing that a baby needs is to be nurtured. It needs to have its its needs taken care of. So you have to create safety. Yeah. And as a coach, that's that's actually like the first thing that we have to do in a way, right? Is we are some years ago someone asked me, like, how do you choose a good coach? And I thought about it for a while on this. I came back and I thought, well, the first quality that a coach needs is actually the quality of caring about helping the students solve their problem. That's, it's really like, it doesn't get any deeper than that. You have to show up emotionally in a place where you want to help. Yeah. Then you need to have the skills and awareness and intelligence to help to actually provide solutions. And then you need the ability to communicate your solutions in such a way that the student will actually gain from them, right? Or to to create to, to create spaces where the student will, will will to get buy-in from the student to 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 play with the constraints you set or to listen yeah. to the lessons that you offer. Right. So those are the three qualities. And the first one that I identified is care. And so when someone comes to a workshop, like the first thing you're doing is basically your first responsibility is to be ready to show up for them emotionally such that they have the sense that, you, that, they're, that you're there for them. That you're their emotional bedrock from whence they can then choose to go to their edges. Yeah. So, so I, I think that our culture has lost the masculine pole. Yeah. Um, but I also think that 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 the problem isn't so isn't as simple as you know um we need to rebalance the masculine and the feminine it's that both are both are somewhat deranged yeah right? absolutely because absolutely. like i i created this um thinking about my own practice right so everyone talks about in, in physical training Discipline, 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 discipline. But then I noticed this thing that the most disciplined times that I, the most disciplined I've been in my practice has been the, the periods in which I injured myself or I had panic attacks. Wow. So it's like, well, there is such a thing as pushing yourself too hard. Right. right. So then I, then I was like, well, I need to, I need to find a balance between self-discipline and self-care. 
Yeah. And then that, that kind of maps to this idea of nurturance and encouragement for the masculine and feminine pole. But then I recognize that, that, that it's not just that you need to balance those two things. You actually have to be able to distinguish the difference between the, the positive expression of it, which is discipline, and the negative expression of it, which is self-abuse. Yeah. Or student abuse, right? Or partner abuse or child abuse, right? Which is when you when you are imposing rules and 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 tasks on people, not because they're for their good, but because they feed your ego or because you want them to be hurt or because you delight in the pain, right? Um, and uh, and then on the flip side. Um, care has the uh, has the the shadow of indulgence, right? Yeah. It's yeah. like you've been training hard. You take a weekend off, and you you eat a pizza, and you uh, and you eat uh, a couple of cartons of ice cream, and you watch Netflix. And it's like, is that actually the most caring thing that you could do for yourself, or did you flip flop to self indulgence because you you haven't been caring for yourself properly? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So, I don't know. I think the question that started that was, you know, how has it transformed me? But I've really come to, to kind of look at those two poles and ask, like, how do I, how do I grow more in that way? You know, right. in those ways. And my students have called forth empathy in me and made me have a deep respect for it such that my highest principle in my system is agape. That's the thing that everybody's in service of. Right. Which is, which is, yeah, I don't know. That's not necessarily how, toughness on the top of it. How would you distinguish agape? When you, when you, yes. when you say agape, what do you mean? I, I mean what John Ravicki means, because I learned it from him. But, you know, yeah. I think of it as the love that brings good into being. The love that is given before it is earned. The love that exists right. by giving it you offer the potential for something to come to be. Right, um, right. And I think, you know, I, I practice meta and, you know, I, I, I ask that the people who I least like in the world experience, you know, um, being well, being at peace, loving and being loved, right? Um, right. And I think that's that's very congruent with the Christian moral framework because there's this idea that that the you know the path to the kingdom of heaven is when we all act such that even the people who are enemies are conceived of as having the potential to move the world towards the good, yes. and then always our responsibility to act towards them right. in such a way that we help them on that path if we have the opportunity. As you're, talk, as you're talking, I'm noticing that there's just, I'm getting a sense of just having these kind of visuals of something like the good, right? Yeah. Brightening. And then just everything starting to organize in relationship to that, right? Of like, and what, and, and, and what the good manifested in whatever context, right, is going to be, you can't write rules about it, right? Because it's, 
it's going to be different, right? Given whatever context, like you're talking about, sometimes it's like, sometimes what's called for is a deep nurturing, right? And just letting somebody know that like, it's okay, right? And come and come hold them and nurture them. And then in, you know, a second later, right? That they're like, it could change to where they need to be pushed to their edge, right? And, and what's interesting about this is like, especially now, because I think we've really, I think our culture has really lost, I mean, we've instrumentalized so much stuff. I mean, we're so, I mean, our technological, um, like way of optimizing everything and kind of getting a control over everything and making everything in terms of useful or as a resource, right? Um, he's, I, I think a lot of people really have this kind of rule-based way of thinking, right? About how they behave. Right. But as you're talking about this, I'm just getting this overall sense of just like, oh, the Talos, right? The yeah. the like the ultimate good that ultimately is something that can't you can't you can't possess it, you can't grasp it, you can't hold on to it, right? You it's always the thing that's ahead of you, right? It's a it's always but yet the more yeah, the more your practice and orientation with that, right? The way that's weaved in the story, right? Like, I was thinking about, this is another thing about courses, is, is I, I sometimes think about it's like, okay, well, the, the course leader is somebody who is holding the central story of, of that course, right? Such that, such that anything that happens, right? the 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 leader the leader in some sense what makes them the leader is is they're minding that story such that even like when somebody resists it right you relate to it in such a way that you weave that resistance into the story so it just deepens so everything is an opportunity to deepen that 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 fundamental story and and i think a uh, uh, it seems to me that what's, and this is what I've appreciated about a recent talk that I, I heard you talking about, talking, I think it was with John and, um, and Paul, yeah. where you were talking about the narrative structure of reality, right? And some of your, some of the things that you've been talking about with the, um, um, the Christian ethos, right? And your thought. I want to talk with you more more about that because it sounds like you've really been doing a lot of a, like a lot of really good thinking around that. Um, but I think, in some sense, I think a lot of people. It's like you can you know you can have you can have a you can have a billion different perspectives on anything, right? Um, and in some sense, you have like choice about what your perspective is. However, the one thing you don't have choice about is that you have one, right? <laughs> and the problem though is, is that I think a lot of people, a lot of people have a, a bunch of different- It's a rush song. Like narratives, right? Like in that, that aren't necessarily connected nor do they go very, very deep. And I, and I get this sense as you're talking about something like, yeah, 
that it is possible to have a, a narrative, a mythos, right? A way of understanding um, that's so deep such that it, that anything that happens, right? Can exemplify and deepen that story, right? That kind of sense of this unit, this in like this kind of guiding unity, right? Such that paradoxically, paradoxically allows you to be like really flexible and and spontaneous in how you respond to things. The more that that the, the deeper the deeper your relationship is with that that sense. That's the, that's that's what I'm getting as you're talking about it. There's a strange pastiche of themes that are coming up for me here, and I don't know how to how to go with it. But as you're talking about that idea of of, of a unity that weaves disunity back into it. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. Unity that weaves disunity back into it. I was thinking about uh, what what came up for me. The first was um, the beginning of the Silmarillion by Tolkien, and it's been a long time since I read that. But the, the idea is that as Melkor becomes discordant with the rest of the Anur, um, the angels, right? It's, it's, as the adversary distinguishes himself from the rest of the angels, Ilvatar weaves it into the song. Right? It's part of the song of being, and the song of being is still good. And, mm -hmm. um, and that reminded me, you know, we both listened to John and uh, Jordan's talk last, uh, last night, right? And I actually had a chat with, with, with John a couple of weeks ago, specifically about the topic of postmodernism and the cultural war. And that's, yeah. been, that's been shifting a lot of things around in my mind. A lot of those themes were were resonant in, uh, in in Peterson's conversation. It's like I feel like they're both right, <laughs> um, but there's but there's still this central thing that I'm not completely that I don't completely understand. I guess, but Peterson basically proposes that the that the idea that our central reality is organized around power, right, is um, Is essentially in Mephistophelian. It's a satanic argument, right? It's 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 satanic, not in the sense that you know it, uh, they're like attributing it to Satan or saying we're Satanists, but satanic in the sense that it is the argument that Satan makes, right? That might just modify is right, and that that ultimately, like all everything else, is just pretense. Yeah, and the golden rule is those with the gold make the rules. Right? And that, that once once you collapse reality to this, you you um, you can't help but serve that, right? Like if, if your only way of viewing people is through that lens, then you become a servant of them. Yeah. And and I think that 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 the Jordan's right that that has happened in our culture. And I think that it's happening. It's happening most apparently in something like wokeism, but it's equally apparent. But it's equally there in QAnon, and even I think like I think neoliberalism is actually 
a species of the same thing. Like it's like more and more I've come to have the sense that that capital became God. That, that Christianity was 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 decrepit. Like I think people don't I feel like people don't realize like I think it's easy to sort of like have your 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 worldview solidify at a specific point in time. And so you're still fighting the, the culture wars of the 90s or the culture wars of the 70s or whatever. It's like the, the whole thing is completely changed. It's like, that doesn't mean that anymore, right? Like, liberals yeah. are not liberal anymore or progressives are not liberal anymore. They're authoritarian, a lot of them, okay? Um, and, and now like the anti-war movement is largely a rights, a central right phenomenon. Um, which is strange, like this is a thing. But yeah, but in the '90s when I was growing up, the central, the central sort of um, coalition of the right was the evangelical conservatives, foreign policy hawks, and and corporatists, mm -hmm. right? And and the corporatists would would sort of wave at Christianity. But to me, it was abundantly clear that it was the most, the thinnest veneer, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And that ultimately they had, they had raised capital to the level of God. Yeah. And so I see that throughout our culture. And it's okay. So, so I think that, that Peterson's right about about the culture war in some sense, about, about this, this proposal of everything is power is, is just a feeling. But I think that, that John is right that that doesn't necessarily come from Derrida or Foucault. Right, and, exactly. And Derrida is maybe something much more interesting and, and revelatory, at least. Um, Absolutely. And postmodernism is actually maybe necessary as a, as a something in this process um, yes but then it's interesting because they so they have that conversation in the beginning and then towards the end of their conversation they reach this point where they're talking about art and the idea that art is that art is art when it serves something transcendent and that it's propaganda when it serves something concrete yeah. right when you know an, an idol is when you make lenin god right an icon, no, an icon understand. An icon, when when an icon carver carves Christ, he recognizes that that the thing that he's trying to capture is always beyond his understanding. Yeah, yeah. So, for some reason, that really struck me. One of my this is just a pet peeve, like you know, maybe it's yeah. relevant. Yeah. A pet peeve. I feel like I, I I was raised in you know fantasy fiction has had this immense impact on me. And I feel like more and more. It, it, it's 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 been captured by an ideological confinement. Oh, are you? Thirty nine. Thirty nine. Okay, I got it. it. And so you, you know, you know, every story um, is going to invert hierarchies, and it's going to feature a spunky female lead character who kicks all the boys' asses, right? And and it's like, yeah. 
Um, Jonathan was talking, uh, Pajot was talking about this in one of his podcasts. He was saying, look for the narrative of return of the return of the king. So this is, I hope this is useful because there's a lot of stuff that's trying to pour out here and I don't know how coherent it is. Yeah, let's, let's, but let's, let's go. So, so I was thinking about that. I was thinking about like my favorite, the best fantasy novels of the re recent times, George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire, right? Um, Joe Abercrombie's uh, books, um, R. Scott Baker. These are like the best. All of them, I think, are deeply postmodern. All about inversion. Right? They're all about challenging you with your desire to believe in these things. Yeah. So, you know, uh, the you know the all-conquering hero, right? The hero, the heroic man who goes out and, and, and kills people to do good, right? Abercrombie takes that central trope in Logan and he makes him an actual serial killer, right? But it still <laughs> makes you love the character, right? Right. Right. Yeah. And, you know, he replaces Gandalf with Baez, who is just a, he's just a power hungry power broker, right? He's like, he owns a bank. Yes. You know, yes. and the, the prince who was promised is just some guy who's, who's held up by the powers that be because he's pretty, you know? Yes. Right. Um, right. And, and there's value in those stories, right? Because, because the sort of, Unthinking, unthinking, bending the knee towards the status quo is a dangerous habit too. Yeah, but yeah. but this is one of Jonathan's central points. You can't replace rebellions aren't stable, right? Yeah. Right. A yeah. Like you're saying you know rebel wisdom, like the dark enlightenment, the or the the, the intellectual dark web. These names that were that were were taking on there they point to something that can only be recursive. It can't stabilize. And so this is why the narrative of the, of the return of the king is powerful. Because, yeah. because what Aragorn represents in the Lord of the Rings is he represents the renewal of the hierarchy in its proper form, yeah. right? Like what the Chinese would call the mandate of heaven, the return of the mandate of heaven to the kingdom. And if you think about it, what is the last story that tells that well? Maybe Black Panther, right? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. The closest that we get. Yeah. Which is interesting. It's a fascinating movie because the woke love it and white nationalists love it. <laughs> right, right, right. Because right? it's a, it's, it's a, it's yeah. an ethnostate, right? It's this conservative ethnostate. Um, yeah. But I, I was thinking, like, I think Harry Potter is the most powerful sort of archetypal story that's come along since Tolkien. Big time. Big time. And, and Frodo and Harry are very, very closely aligned. They're Christ figures. But so much of, of contemporary fiction is about the outsider and the rebel and about the outsider's desire to reshape society such that they're comfortable with him. And so it's marginalized identities that are that are that are sort of um, moved to the forefront of the stories. But if you look at Frodo, 
Frodo's journey is as someone who's slightly on the outside of society to someone who's completely on the outside of the society, right? And he never gets to integrate back in. And he goes through the whole hero's journey. And he's a Christ-like figure, but he fails. He fails the challenge that Christ succeeds at, right? And it's only through, through providence that he succeeds. And he goes back and he's unable to return. He's unable to integrate back into his own society. But he's, but he's willing to take that sacrifice in order that hobbits can continue to be short-sighted, myopic, simple-minded country folk. Right. It's a very right. different story. And then, yeah. and then, of course, Harry succeeds. Harry accomplishes everything that Christ accomplishes, right? He dies willingly through love, right? It's his capacity for love that allows him to be redeemed. He returns from death, right? He's an extraordinary Christ-like. And, yeah. and, and then... And then it's like, well, Christ, Harry redeems, evil's gone, and the world is, is, is good. But one of the huge themes in Harry Potter is that the, the hierarchy is corrupt, and this is how evil arose. Right? Voldemort comes back into power because Cornelius Fudge and, um, and, and Rufus Scrimgeour are, are blind and myopic and unwilling to confront the problem, and then, and then you know, basically ruthless and unwilling to be truthful. Yeah. But who's the minister of magic at the end of of Harry Potter? I'm not that familiar with Harry Potter. You don't know. Most people wouldn't know. It's Kingsley Shacklebolt. I mean, it's in his name, Kingsley, right? His uh, name yeah. tells you yeah. who he is. Yeah. But he's not developed yeah. as a character. He has right. very little character arc. So he represents huh. the renewal of, of the hierarchy. There's no, there's no development of that theme, right? And so I just think it was an interesting thing. And I was talking to my friend Tom Wexler um, yesterday, and he was talking about how art always disrupts the status quo. And yeah. martial arts always disrupt the status quo. And so that's not true. Martial arts were mostly, yeah. the, the, they originated as the tools of soldiers to enforce the status quo. And, yeah. and the, many of the greatest artistic works of all time are about representing the, the beauty of the status quo or the, the, the hierarchy as it's represented proper, properly, right? The, the cathedral. Right. The, right. Like Notre Dame took 400 years to build. Right. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. like, it's the most extraordinary work of art that you could ever, ever consider. And it's not about inverting the tropes of Christianity or the hero myth or telling people that, you know, we need to get rid of the kings. It's, it's about none of those things. Yeah. So that it's yeah. a very strange modernist conception that the role of art is to disturb the hierarchy rather than to celebrate and represent how it can be done well. Right. So, sorry, I, 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 I there's a lot of thoughts that I wanted to share, and you seemed like someone who would get a lot well, out of that. So I want the mic back to you. I don't have a question for you, but what comes up for you as I as I share these ideas? Well, well, well a couple of things. Um, one of them is 
just wanted to ask you about just noting, and I relate to this. I mean, I relate to this deeply. Mm-hmm. That that you find yourself thinking about this stuff, interested <laughs> in, right? Like, like going down these rabbit holes and like opening things up, and and you can tell that this is a big part of your life, right? In some sense, right? You're thinking about. You're open to something here, and what is that? What do we, and especially just in a, in a certain sense, because I think you and I are, um, and I think, I think we pr- probably to some, some degree, like we could say on, on one level, I could say I totally signed up for this. And on another level, there, there's a sense where I'm finding out what I signed up for, <laughs> which is being um, essentially uh, hosting communities of practice, right? Like this is, and it's, it's, it's interesting because I think that there's, there's parallels historically, obviously with the rules that we're, that, that we're having, but it's also by given, given that the um, uh, religion proper, right? Has less and less of an explicit stake on people's attention anymore, right? In some sense, what we're doing, right, with our practices are, I think is, is, is in some sense, right, we are, you know, in lots of ways are kind of like ministers, right? We're, you know, we're mediating <laughs> this kind of relationship between, right, the, the, you know, the, <laughs> the, the commons and the eternal, right? And that's, and, and mediating that relationship and trying to facilitate it and 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 i think that that in precisely in precisely in that um and i don't think your work i i mean my my work explicitly circling is 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 a secular practice i mean in terms of explicitly i don't know if anything's actually secular but like you know explicitly it's um it's a secular practice. It isn't like, you know, one has to believe anything about it. However, this kind of experience of kind of creating experiences and containers and communities that form around the development of things that historically have been in the domain of religion, right? Um, in some sense, we're, we're kind of straddling that line, right, in, in the culture. And I think I'm I think we're responding to something. And, and for me, this is, cause I've, this is a big mystery for me. I'm like, what? Like, for example, I picked up, I started reading Heidegger of all people when I, in my early twenties, I, I have dyslexia and I had all kinds of learning disabilities and, and something about Heidegger right at around the time that we started doing circling caught my attention. Right. And I was like, spending hours every day trying to like make my way through being in time, <laughs> having no idea what I was actually reading or why I was reading it, right? And so, there, and so I, I, just, I just relate to this experience of this is what you've been thinking about, right? You've been tracking something, right? You've been, and you're moved to have conversations like this, right? And it sounds like also 
like facilitate conversations like this, encourage conversations like this. And it kind of takes us, it like, you know, we're, we're, yeah. What are you doing? Like, what is, like, what, what are you what responding to? What is, what yeah. What, <laughs> you know what I'm, do you know what I'm asking? Uh, I think so. Um, yeah. I, it's funny. I had the same question come up in my, uh, in my group, right? Like, so we, we have an online academy for our students. And, mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm laying out a lot of these thoughts and, you know, one of my students is like, How did you get to be you? You know, like, 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 yeah. How, why do you think? How did you read all these things? Why? Did, how did you end up reading all these things? Yeah, uh, yeah. My reaction was funny. It was a funny thing because what it actually took me to is I remember being a child in the counterculture and like sort of being told that this was my role, right? Hmm. But I rejected that role and went some other direction and ended up there anyways. Right. right in some sense right, right. like my right. mom used to tell me stories about how when i was two years old three years old she'd find me on like i'd run off on a trail and she'd find me discussing the nature of god with people right yeah and, um, yeah you know I, I was involved in a native american religious practice between 8 and 12 years old and like all these people you know were sort of expecting something from me you know <laughs> i don't know like telling me that i had, i was wise when i was 12 years old i was like i'm not wise i don't know anything you have to be have experience that wisdom right i'm just yeah. good at juggling words um and then as has this practice and all these things have developed you know i i did this thing called tribe design with my friend daniel eisen and uh and i'm teaching what i teach and somehow people are like you know, your spiritual teacher. I was like, oh, please don't tell me. <laughs> it's not, I, I don't, I don't like that, right? Because what I, having grown up in the counterculture, what I associate spirituality with is people who, who want to rob you blind and, you know, sexually molest you. Like that's, it's pretty much yeah. your spiritual teacher's argument. Yeah. Yeah. And convince you that the world is, convince you of a model of the world that's utterly untenable. Um, yeah. So I don't know why I ended up being interested in the things that I'm interested in. I don't think anyone knows truly, right? Um, but it's resonant with certain themes that have happened throughout my life. It's resonant with the very unique and strange place that I ended up growing up as the father of a, not, sorry, the son of a, of a natural building madman who was a kind of leader in the hippie community, right? Um, oh, yeah? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know this part of my story. No, yeah, yeah, tell me about your dad. Is that your dad? Yeah, my dad, Sunray, Sunray Kelly. He's, uh, he's a madman who, um, who, story is that he went and dropped acid in a field in, uh, in, a, in a cow pasture and um, came back as Sunray and dropped out of his, his architecture degree program and where he was being groomed to be a great architect and started designing houses that looked like a cross between, you know, uh, Brian Froud paintings and ancient, uh, you know, um, Norwegian churches and um, building things at a cob. And That's awesome. 
yeah, so that was, that was that was it. You know, like I grew up going to the Old Country Fair every year and the Rainbow Gathering and you know right. all the, all these kinds of things. And, yeah. and I had an interest in I had an interest in stories and interesting this kind of fun from an early age. Yeah. But it was too much chaos. Right. 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 There, there's too much chaos in that in that in the counterculture. Right, the counterculture. It's interesting. I've, I've been thinking a lot about this, and I obviously I, I could always do more research. But I think the, the counterculture is the last expression of romanticism before postmodernism, right? Because yeah. postmodernism starts to develop in the academy in the late '60s, but the counterculture is already flowing forth right around the same time. And it, it actually has its antecedents in like theosophy, and it has its antecedents in um, in in German nature cults, right? Heidegger and, and Steiner, right? Huh? Steiner, yes. Steiner. Rolf Steiner. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and it's it's like a it, it contains a profound and, and an important critique of of nineteen fifties hyper-technological America. Like Mar Heidegger was, was really right about a lot of the stuff he said about how technology has, you know, Mar Marshall McLuhan's idea that the, the medium is the message, right? It's like, well, we've become, we have become gods, but for the wisdom. And maybe when you, you develop godlike powers, maybe that actually encourages you to believe that power is everything. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And to totally. separate yourself from the natural world. Yeah. To, to make it something that you use instrumentally. And, and so the hippies were right about that, but they, they, threw, they threw out too much and there was, and there was, too, there was too little grounding. You know? And so as a child of that, raised in really chaotic situations, seeing a lot of people utilize spiritual ideas to, to manipulate people, um, I, I really was seeking the ground. So, you know, in, in preparation for this interview, you said you really appreciate the way I sort of stand within my, my epistemology as I'm having these conversations. Like, I think the reason that, that I, the scientific epistemology is so valuable and important to me is because it was a ground that I could stand on yeah. coming out of the, the sea of chaos that is the, the counterculture. Yeah, absolutely. But, but as much as I reject hippiness yeah on some level like i can't escape the fact that that's who i grew up around right yeah. that's what i was within and obviously like so many of the themes in my own work are are deeply congruent with that that tradition right like, it'd be easy to map steiner to what i'm doing and so i think it's you know when i first encountered peterson's idea of, of rescuing your father from the underworld like, really was thinking about that in reference to Christianity and the Western tradition. And then I was like, well, my father is also the counterculture. I have to integrate right. that, you know, you know transcend yeah. and include it. Right. And so I think that there's something that is going on, you know, like I get, I, I don't know that much about you guy, but I get the sense that the counterculture is a big part of your, your history and story as well. Like you, you, have, you have a certain affect in your speech, which speaks to me about <laughs> 
of the of the counterculture. This stuff started at Burning Man. Yeah, totally. So, so I don't know. I feel like there's a there's a set of problems that have been going on for quite a long time, right? Since you know, you know, I think I think John Ravicki has laid out the history of the Moon Crisis really well. You know, and it's like we still we're still trying to figure that stuff out, and and I think that this next iteration of people, uh, there's a there's a there's a group of people, anyways. Maybe they're the leading edge. Maybe we're a backwater that doesn't realize it. Um, but we're all, in some sense, playing with this game of how do how do we get outside of the problem as it currently is by looking back. And looking forward more effectively, and by creating practices, or um, yeah, or returning to practices that can that can help us move forward. Totally. And then the bit. So a couple of things. Like one is I can. I, I don't know. I don't know if this fits for you, but I could definitely. When he talked about like, oh yeah, you struggle with judgment. Mm -hmm. I can totally get it. Like, I don't know if it's connected to that with you, but like, I could imagine if you grew up in a, you know, basically a hippie commune, yeah. right? That's, that's, that on some level is, is counter dependent, if you will, right? Pushing, pushing off of, off of order, right? And then you're growing up in that, right? Kind of like trying to feel the ground. It makes, <laughs> it makes, it's interesting. It's like, for you to rebel is to be a lawyer or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, you know, I grew up hippie and I ended up a square. I mean, I look a little bit hippie right now, but I usually have my beard and hair trimmed a little bit tighter. You know, yeah. don't smoke weed. Yeah. Don't go to festivals. In fact, like, uh, I don't know, this this recent string of conversations that I've had have really been, mm -hmm. you know, that, that sense of epiphany of like having something uncover itself. That's been happening yeah. around how my experience of the counterculture has shaped the way that I approach things and the way that I think about things. Yeah. But that yeah. conversation with Tom yesterday that I was telling you about, we, he was he was talking about Jackson Pollock and uh, mm -hmm. and how his approach to art was inspirational to him and how it related to dance and the types of dance that, that he's interested in. And um, And, and you know he was saying it's anti-status quo. I mean, of course, I did the, the example with cathedrals, but like I, I love cathedrals. <laughs> I hate Jackson Pollock. I hate, I hate, I hate Picasso. I like that. Yeah. And like, right. No, and I'm not saying that people should hate those things or that I'm cool. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm saying that I have this very intense visceral, visceral, rea visceral reaction to modernist and postmodernist art. Right? Yeah, yeah. I think it's because it represents something that was actually traumatic for me. Like, yeah. like I, we actually need order, right? And it's interesting though because where I connect with the hippies is that the cathedral is a representation of the forest. The cathedral is a representation of the forest. I've never heard that before. Never thought. That's actually a point that uh, I think Jordan Peterson made. Oh, Imagine. What, what creates a sense of awe in a human being? What did we evolve from? Now imagine these high arching pillars coming together overhead with light streaming down through them. 
Yeah. Of multiple yeah. colors. Right. What is that? It's a forest. Right. Yeah. Right? You go yeah. into particularly beautiful glades in the forest and you'll have that experience of awe, that experience of, of mm, this, is, this is the cathedral. Yeah. yeah. There's a song by uh, artist Dick Gowan, um, which I really love, called Redwood Cathedral. It's about John Newell. Better church by far, right, than after a war. Right, right. And I think that obviously Christianity has been really influential on what I've been thinking about recently. And I'm very, I'm sympathetic to the argument that, that, that in some sense, Christianity has the central lesson, the central narrative that we have to recover and live within. But it hasn't, it hasn't succeeded to me, right? Like, I was listening, you know, John and, and Jordan were talking about the idea that the resurrection points the way towards embodiment. Right? The insistence on Christ's resurrection is about, um, it's about the fact that, that, that it's this world that we're in that we have to redeem, right? And, 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 that, you know, and that the redemption has to be embodied. But if you look at the history of Christianity, if you look at the medieval church, it's extraordinarily anti-body. And, and, you know, as you asked me about what, how, how does this happen? It's like, well, in a lot of ways, we're just going back to the beginning because physical practices were integrated with spiritual practices, right? Like the idea that yoga is a way of getting exercise that you do at a secular gym is a really new idea, right? Yeah. The asana originated as ways of cultivating things that allow you to sit in contemplation so you can act out your branch of Vedanta, right? And Tai Chi, Bagua, Jinyi, they're all Taoist practices. And Sumo is something that you get at at, uh, at Shinto temples. Yeah. You, you can yeah. come and, 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 you know, Socrates was a stonemason who met Plato, who was a wrestler at the gymnasia. Yep. And started having dialogue. Yep. That one, that I love that. Yeah. That part of the dialogue. I'm like, that one's going to be whittling into my brain for quite a while. I can tell. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I said John the message about it. And, you know, I was just saying, we have to have physical practices. Yeah. Right. And we have to have those physical practices integrated towards a higher goal. Yep. Towards a culture yep. culture. But we can't get there. Like he's talking about, you don't win the culture war by, by creating a better propositional argument. You, ha you have to facilitate people growing in virtue such that they transcend the culture war. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, yeah. And that only happens through something uh, to me you can't do it unless you have movement mindfulness nature connection community but like, those are the four elements that cannot be yeah you can't do it without and and christianity to me has the best story and the best description of that highest value but it lacks the embodied practices yep yep big time and and also as part of this i think you have it sounds like that's that's a bit of what you're responding to right, is just that, that felt gap, right, mm -hmm. between, between 
essentially the the missing of our, our of our embodiment. Yeah, yeah, it's one of the things I'm responding to as I as I examine this. Right, um, I'm saying here's here's what I see that's missing. There's a section in that conversation between John and and, uh, and Jordan where they talk about Israel. Right, it means yeah. he who wrestled with God. And Jacob, Jacob goes in a tent with God and wrestles with him. His hip is dislocated, but somehow he wins. He pins God down. And because of that, he, you know, he's elevated and he becomes, you know, father of nations. Um, and, and then it becomes the name of his people. Right? And then maybe through Christ, we're all part of Israel. Right? That's the story. And then there's this idea that, that, that the God is something to be wrestled with. And that if you wrestle, you might win. <laughs> But you might be wounded in the process. Yeah. And so as I was listening to that part, I was like, how are you going to wrestle with God if you never wrestled? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Where yeah. are you going to cultivate the character that can wrestle with God? Right. Without this. Right. And why do my children spend so much of their time wanting to wrestle? Right. And why isn't that part of it? How many kids do you have? I have three children. You have three? How old are they? I have an eight-year-old daughter, a six-year-old son, and a three-year-old daughter. Oh wow! You are you are you have an active life, my friend. <laughs> I do. I do. <laughs> I am. Uh, I'm. I'm way too fresh. <laughs> I was like trying to prepare for this. So it's been, it was a, it was the hottest three days in Bellingham history. Right, we broke a temperature record here three days in a row. It was 88 degrees trying to go to sleep last night. Um, like, yeah. <laughs> so I didn't sleep well. And like, I'm trying to prepare for this conversation with you. And like that conversation between John and Jordan, like literally broke my brain yesterday. It took me six hours to get through it, you know? And I feel like I'll be thinking about it for weeks. Um, yeah. Why am I doing this to myself? <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm going over and doing double backflips and doing the water. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> trying to balance all these things. Yeah. Yeah. I have a son on, on, on its way. He's, he's due uh, August 11th. That's coming up real soon. That's my wife and I's anniversary. And my son was born August 16th. Oh, great. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. My son, my other son just turned 18. So wow. I figured, well, I want to propose, I kind of laid out a lot of my thoughts that have come up out of the last conversation from the things we were talking about, but um, mm. there's something that I didn't tie in, which is, the question of evil, right? So there's this idea that, that, the, that the power narrative is the Mephistophelian argument. And Jordan proposes that that chaos and order, good and evil, are like the fundamental con constituents of reality. Yeah. And I didn't see John really address this, but I don't think that, that, that John agrees that, that evil is a fundamental constituent of reality. It's not the sense that I get. I think that he... I would guess, and you know, he didn't tell me. <laughs> I could have texted him before this and asked, but um, yeah, my guess is that his 
his view of evil is more like what you see in the Buddhist and Vedantic tradition, where it's an illusion, right? Yeah. And that ultimately, once the illusion is removed, even the most horrifying demon can become an angel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And and I was thinking about this, like, if everything is, is united in the end, right, if the Tao is all things, then there can be a sense of a, of a local a local disturbance from the Tao. But that, that disturbance from the Tao has to be ultimately part of the Tao, right? Yeah. And it's like there's this river. I'm imagining a river in the backwaters and the perturbances in the river. But really still the river's all moving in one direction. I don't know the answer to that because I think that have that the, the abandonment of the idea. Of evil. You don't that? know the answer? I'm deeply disappointed. <laughs> you don't know the answer to that question? <laughs> I don't know my answer to it, anyways. Uh, um, Jordan makes the point that basically he thinks the Christian tradition is the best psychology of evil. And that I think that our, our loss of that psychology, of, you know, being able to understand in the Fistophilian perspective is very, has been very blinding to us right um right and i think there's something true there yeah but i also struggle what is just so, so real quick the 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 christian understanding of evil i haven't thought much about evil explicitly what what's there what's the just the gist of the christianity is it doesn't christianity their sense of evil is that it's the absence it's just the, um, it, it's not an ontological thing in itself. It's just that, like, when the good or, yeah. like, blocked or, like, it doesn't have a, an ontological reality from itself or in itself, right? Mm-hmm. Is that the Christian view or is it? Uh, I don't know if there is really one Christian view. There's the, the way that, you know, the way that I'm thinking about this is really conditioned by Peterson, right? And he's, He's talking about how it's represented in story, right? So if yeah. you go to different Christian theologians, you get different perspectives on it, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think there's pretty different perspectives that have been held within Christians on that. But uh, the idea is that within Paradise Lost and uh, Dante and Faust, you have this, this representation of the idea of the adversary. And, and, and also in the Garden of Eden, Revelations. Now this this yeah. idea of the adversary is essentially the person who would set themselves against being because being is too corrupt. Yeah. Yeah. You look at the world as it is and you say, this shouldn't be. That the output of that is destruction, right? And that it makes everything worse. And that being unwilling to recognize that such a thing exists and to call it evil is actually really problematic. Uh, as a rational atheist type, I, you know, I had this, this, this sense that if you, had, if you met an ant, right, and you realized that at, that ant was the Adolf Hitler of ants, wouldn't really have any emotional impact on you. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. Um, and if you can imagine yourself for a second as a sun, right, you're a star system. Yeah. You look down on Earth and, and there's Adolf Hitler. Does he does he matter to you? Right, right. 
but his right. crimes, you know, transcendently obvious as, as fundamental realities that have to be addressed. Right, right. Um, and so, well, from a materialist perspective, the evil is, evil doesn't really exist. But, and this is a great point that I think Peterson makes, that frame is just a stupid frame to think about human activity from. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Right. So you can, you can go play with it in that frame, and that's fine. Right. But it doesn't help you organize how you behave in a human being. And so trying to, to, yeah. trying to push that frame into how we actually are in behavior is, yep. is misleading. And therein lies the question of what's motivating, given that's the case, what motivates one to, to push, push that frame and look, look at things like that, mm -hmm. right? It's a, it's, it keeps thinking, I'm, I'm getting this sense as, as we're talking about it. See, this is where, this is where I, and, I, and I can feel your, what I'm imagining is your, your particular sensitivity to this, because on some level you have, um, <laughs> you were, you grew up in a, in a, in the absence of, of hierarchy, if you will, or explicit or pushing against it. Right. And so that sense of, that sense of, um, of order was, was, was missing and traumatic. Right. And, and I can feel this in our conversation, all the things that you're talking about, right? It, it's, it's circling around this, this sense about where I, this is where I start to feel like the, that these kinds of things, these questions about meaning and about evil, right? And these kind of, uh, on one level, these very meta, you could say, like cosmological, ontological, right? Pick your, you know, your, your allergy, right? It, it, it goes, it reaches way out there. But when you think about what, how much pain, right? Um, we are open to as a being, right? And at some point we're gonna feel it, right? To, to some degree or, or, or another, we're gonna feel that pain. And like, if this doesn't mean anything, right? If, if, if ultimately that it is, it is pointless and we have those kinds of views or we have that experience of reality, give us enough pain, right? And it's gonna, it's gonna just, it will occur as, as it will occur as something to get rid of for sure, right? Being itself. So on some level, it's like, this is one of the things I, I, I feel really strongly about this and, 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 and I'm finding myself, you know, kind of one of these things where I'm realizing on one level, like, well, what am I, what am I responding to, right? Because I'm something I, I find myself already underway being, right? It, that's always the case. It's like, like, phenomenologically, here's the character of every single moment. I find myself here already begun, right? At some point, like, at some point, uh, you know, for some people, it's like later in their life. Some people, it's really, really early. But at some point, like you kind of, you kind of come to in a sense. And I remember, like you kind of come to already being a person in a world, right? Like with a first name and a last name and a set of concerns. And there's this quality of like, 
existence, we're in some sense, we're thrown into it, we find ourselves here already in the midst of it, right? So it's like, this is something in which we're, did we, like, um, it's a deep, we're, did we deeply participate in our existence? And there is this quality to it where, like, existence is one of these things that you couldn't have wanted it, right? It's like, you know, so I think, um, forget the, the name of the author, the guy who wrote a book up about death, but he was, he was saying that, you know, like, you know, he, he thinks that sacrifice, right? These rituals of sacrifice that go, you know, all the way back, he thinks that they're essentially about this feeling of indebtedness for existence, right? There's this feeling of like, that we were born and given all of it, right? And there's nothing that we can do to repay it, right? There's nothing that we can do. We couldn't have, we couldn't have even wanted it, right? And that there's something about that indebtedness that's like at the very center of our, of our embodied being here, our embedded body being here, right? And, and I think one of the one of the things that's really gone astray, right, is this, these kind of verticality questions, right? These, these deeper senses of like, you know, because, because we don't, we're not born into a story, right? We're not born into a, like a Christian story. We're not born into like a unified, right, thing that you kind of come to in a bunch of roles. Like none of that stuff, I mean, most of that stuff is just gone now. Right, and if it's if it if it exists for people, it's something that they have to really really cultivate. It's not provided less and less. I mean, the best we got is like Netflix, <laughs> right? Um, so it's really on us. I mean, it's really on the individual. I think now more than ever, um, and I have a sense that it's really it has to do with like it's a real responsibility to. Um, because you're going to have a philosophy, right? It's like philosophy, these deep philosophical dialogues and these conversations, right? These, these things are, um, I, the, I can't, they're, they're, they're like, they're, they're, they're conversations. It's like, it's a conversation that it's not like a conversation I could have or not have, right? By, by the fact that I am a being, I'm already here with the, I, I am that being which is concerned for being, right? That's the what kind of defines it. Yeah, there it is, right? Being is being and question. Absolutely. And so if I don't have that conversation explicitly, I'm gonna still have that conversation. I'm gonna live out that conversation, right? And so, especially these these things about these kind of like verticality, these things about well, who, what is the central story I'm living out? What does what is meaning, right? What, who am I in relationship to these things? Um, and my experience with this is like, I I feel like I feel um, uh, it's like I want. I want to awaken or be a part of awakening um, a deep care for this, right? A real deep care for 
um, for things like philosophy, right? Genuine thought, right? These kinds of things. Um, because I think that when people think about these things, it, it, they kind of think about it as, you know, they're kind of dry or abstract or out there or something like that. But my experience is, is that when you start, when you start encountering these off authors and you start having these conversations, when you start interrogating existence um, at that level, you yourself, you find you yourself interrogated right back, right? And and so there's a big part of what I feel like I'm up to, right? And what's motivating um, and inspiring for me was like, is why I'm doing, I think ultimately what's why I have a YouTube channel, what has me doing, doing circling. John and I are gonna do a course on Dialogos in a, in a couple of months together. So what we're trying to bring some like formality to some of the practice, like the practice and weave that together. Um, and I often ask myself, I'm like, well, what is it? what am I responding to, right? Like what's, what's, what am I actually like of all the things that I could be doing, why am I doing this? Why am I thinking about this stuff? Why am I having this conversation with you? And I think ultimately it's, I think I feel deeply moved um, to encourage other people to have reverence, right? For the eternal conversation, right? And, and for them to have a sense of that, that on, on some level, these things seem really abstract, but actually when you get into them, they're the most closest thing to our being. They're the closest thing into us and how we address the world and how the, the world addresses us. And that relationship, right? Um, I, in some sense, I feel this wrestling match with God, right? And I can feel you, like you're, you can, you definitely are a wrestler. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you are definitely, you are definitely a wrestler. Um, Yeah, so, so there's a sense, there's a sense in which, you know, and I think, I think one of the things about I mean, what, I mean, my wife comments about this, you know, makes, she, she loves that I'm doing these videos and I'm having conversations with people. She loves it. On one level, she's just glad that I can, I have friends, right? Like, <laughs> that, like that I have somebody, I have somebody to talk to about all this stuff because, I'm so, I, you know, I've always been, um, I've always been the one, like the only one that I knew that was like reading the Heidegger books and all that kind of stuff. I don't have an academic background or any of that, any of that. So coming, you know, doing this on YouTube and having these conversations um, like the ones that we're having, I don't know exactly what's going on with these or where they're going, um, but the, the, the deep connections that I've ended up having and the deep friendships that I've had and um, have cultivated through this have, are just have been just so so nourishing um, for me, and uh, it's so nourishing for me. Absolutely, I, yeah. I have the same sense, you know, um, the, the, the podcasting thing has been extraordinarily generative of connection and understanding and insight. 
Yeah, these conversations. So, yeah. Speaking of the conversation, my kids are, are getting impatient. I hear them tromping around in the background saying, they've talked for hours. Um, <laughs> my, my youngest daughter soon. Where, where do you live? I'm uh, based in Bellingham, Washington. Okay, you're in Washington. Okay, so you're not that far away. No, you're in uh, you're down in the Bay Area. I, I normally visit there fairly regularly, but I haven't been recently. You do? But uh, we can make well, it happen. We'll have to definitely get together. Yeah, okay. yeah. I'm seeing uh, I'm seeing some gathering for all of us, right? At some point here in the next year, I have a feeling. I have a feeling that's going to happen. Yes, I have a. I see all these people talking, and we're all talking heads. And I think the talking can be so much better when it's surrounded by these other practices. Like I want to bring everybody out to my dad's land and get you guys wrestling and taking saunas and campfire and music, and then 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 see what's what's generated in the insights. Yeah, right on. Well, thank you very much, Guy. It was wonderful to to speak and to get to know you, and I look forward to future chats. Yeah, I look forward to it. Hey, you reached the end of another Evolve Move Play podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, if you want to be involved in the conversation, please consider joining us in our new membership subscription so you can get access to question and answers with our live speakers once a month, question and answers with me once a month, and a dedicated forum to discuss everything going on in the podcast, as well as a general discussion of movement on our general movement forums. If you're interested in that, make sure to check out the link below get signed up and join a part of our membership community. If you can't join our membership community right now, it's still always helpful if you can like, share, and subscribe, and even hit that bell and get notifications for upcoming Evolve in the Play podcasts. But audios for now, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys.